What's up, everybody? Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Before we start, I promised my wife I would do this because she says I'm bad at it. I have another podcast you may not know about called Nuclear Barbarians, and you can access it through the Substack, nuclearbarbarians.substack.com. There is also a weekly energy newsletter with that. If you've been wondering where some of our infrastructure coverage has gone, it has gone over there. You can check out the link to that in the show notes. I would also like to say, I hate doing this, but... It would be very helpful to us if you could rate and review it on Apple's iTunes or wherever they allow you to rate these things. I don't know if it's just Apple, but we'd greatly appreciate it this holiday season. And we have a Patreon. We're doing cool stuff there. We're going through Christopher Lash's The True and Only Heaven. I'm going to stop talking about this stuff now. The rest of it's in the show notes. Let's just talk about Agamben. I want to talk about bear life with you, Mike. I want to talk about the epidemic as politics. In other words, I want to talk about where we are now, my guy. We have to turn to... Uh, yeah. I think... Uh, so So we're talking about the book, Where Are We Now? That's mm-hmm. the title. So I just read this on my phone really quickly, it, which is very surprising. Like you can't read Giorgio Agamben book on your phone normally. <laughs> like it's no. Just... <laughs> oh my God. Reading Homo. I haven't read Homo Sucker in like a long time, but I remember being like, going it's through rough. it. And the, I'm, I, so I'm, I'm not, I think that maybe the translator did a good job here, but also I think he's like posting on his blog. So it's kind of, and he's writing op-eds for people. Yeah. And yeah. Like, yeah, there's yeah. there's interviews and stuff in here. So yeah. he, he has to kind of like this is honestly if you if you kind of were put off by his other writing, like this is definitely worth far less uh, forbidding. At. Yeah, and I think this was the first book or the the first writing in general, I think, that has expressed the the level and depth of of anger that I think you know, I, I feel is warranted and just based on the, the response to this pandemic so far. I mean, this is the first thing that I was just like, oh, okay, like I'm not like totally crazy. You know, sometimes it's hard for me to calibrate, like, you know, is this recreational anger? Is this, you know, like yeah. justified <laughs> anger? But yeah, no, I think, I think this really, um, is an impressive document in some ways. The the first half is a little bit repetitive. I think they cu- could have probably left out the the interviews. But I mean, like the so chapter twelve, medicine as religion, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably on his on his blog. But I mean, I would just like everyone should read this. That was written on the second of May. It was, I was thinking back. Okay, so the thing about this book is that all of the entries in it have the month in which it was published in 2020. And they're all from 2020, post-arrival of the pandemic. So we're really talking about like a six-month window or something like that mm-hmm. in which these were churned out, Yeah, which is pretty impressive. But I started, I'm thinking about like where I was and what I was doing in May. And this was still peak freakout mode. Yeah, No one knew what it was. I was definitely governed by fear. I had lurking notions, right? Like I was thinking, okay, I because I had read Agamben before and I'd read some Zizek where he talks about bear life, I was starting to have questions pretty much around May and June about what life was for, but I still like couldn't let myself ask those questions. Because in part because my wife was also sick from something else at the time. Mm -hmm. And like the risk factor for us personally just seemed way too high for me to entertain those ideas, Mm -hmm. which I guess is part of the power of the bare life argument, right? Yeah. But uh, the fact that he's going there in May is uh, astonishing to me. Yeah. And that he's like completely called the coercive nature of it, the religious mm-hmm. nature of it, the uh, like he doesn't go quite as far as like to nominate, you know, a class in the Marxist sense, but he like clearly identifies the experts, the public health authorities. He talks about Bill Gates. He talks about the WHO yeah. emanating from Bill Gates and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like he, like he, he had a very clear idea of. The, he was pilled before everybody. Man. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, he's absolutely. And he he cites someone in here who he, I think, credits with most of this kind of foresight that he has, Patrick Zilberman. Yeah, and the book came out in like the early 2010s, I think. Yeah, 2013. So that that looks like it was uh, written in French, and certainly I would I would like to look at that because what this Giorgio's book <laughs> has to say is that you know he looked at WHO documents that were being presented to states, and kind of foresaw that they were opening this biosecurity political option to those states, suggesting it to them, but they were not yet ready. And this was in the the kind of bird flu, early bird flu pandemics, one of them, 2005 or something like that, I think, that he was looking at. And he, so he calls this very early on by saying that this like uh, biosecurity option has already been kind of marketed to the states and they just weren't ready for it at that time and like this time they were and i think that was that's absolutely correct like that yeah that's the reading that makes the most sense of what we saw and it's what's interesting about that is that they were they were and they weren't ready in other words it seemed like there are plenty of people sitting in a good position to capitalize politically and economically on what was going on at the same time despite all this preparation there was no one hanging around to actually handle the outbreak very well at all. This is something that we've documented through the course of our VAX series. Yeah. From the handling of the people on the cruise ships to being straightforward with the public about the nature of masking to creating just the idea of what the vaccine was going to do. The idea that it was going to stop transmission was always a fantasy, you know. So... I think that's what was fascinating to me is that it's obvious that useful ideas or things like that, certain institutional structures were waiting in the wings for something like this, and that those also benefited on the atrophy of other elements of these various organizations as well. Yeah. And I mean, in some ways, the kind of cultic medical practice that he's calling out, particularly in that that chapter 12 there kind of on some level actually required their that atrophy like it required there to be no real control over this and no sensical scientific management i mean if such a thing exists but you know something that would have been actually effective would not have allowed the transition that was being proposed like more or less explicitly and i i, I think you know for me that that really highlights the, the need to go back and look at a lot of these like the documents coming out of the simulations and the kind of proposals that were being circulated by the who but i remember in a lot of those simulations like you know they would talk about you know how governments became more authoritarian in this you know, in the simulation and the how the population's response to that needed to be managed. And like, I, I you know, when you're reading it, it's just kind of like an after action report in a simulation. It's like, all right, well, you know, maybe it's not that notable. But then right. when you- I've read when plenty you, of shitty modeling and stuff like that. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 whatever. Exactly. Like, yeah, well, like, okay, so someone in, someone in a game basically chose <laughs> yeah. to do this. And like, I've so also fun. played D&D. D&D. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm yeah. an authoritarian in video games too. Like, yeah. it's fun. <laughs> but, you know, the so- but if you when you re- read that as like a marketing proposal or like political program, actually, that's when it's like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> like so, like that was what was necessary in order for this transition to occur. And there, the, this book does a good job of laying out a certain type of ideological path dependency here, as well. So yeah, for people who don't know, Agamben rises to prominence in the early 2000s because he takes the ideas of Carl Schmidt, the German jurist, who's most consequential works arrive in the Weimar era, and eventually he joins the Nazi party, I think in the same month that Heidegger does, has a terrible time, is a total opportunist, all sorts of other things happen to him. You know, he gets tried and basically let go, and then is banished from all institutions and lives out the rest of his life bitterly writing against globalization. That's the story of Carl Schmidt. But he has these helpful ideas about constitutional order that become actually very influential in the creation of European constitutions, in the study of jurisprudence, and in theorizing 
politically about what is happening in the early 2000s to the U.S. Constitution and American society during the war on terror, especially after what we find out about what's happening at Guantanamo Bay. And Agamben is there theorizing that already, and he's very interested in the idea of emergency constitutional power and states of exception that suspend the ordinary constitutional rules and allow for fiat reworking of politics along juridical lines. So I, I actually tried to give a very brief summary of something along those lines in one of the previous episodes and badly fumbled it by saying that the homo sacred could be sacrificed when the whole point of the homo sacred is that yeah. it can't be sacrificed because yeah. he's outside the law. But I guess the, the point of the Schmidian idea is that the sovereign is or sovereignty resides with the one who decides on the state of exception when the law is applied and when it is not. Right. It focuses on exceptionality and Schmidt in either, I think in either political theology or the concept of the political, I can't remember which, says that the limit defines what is normal, not the other way around. Yeah. And I mean, practically like this extends from Schmidt's time forward to the present day, as well as, you know, backwards in time, you can look at colonial states and the way that they treated the native inhabitants of the Americas, for instance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, in order to establish a constitutional order within the, this newly colonized land, you have to actually put everyone who's there already outside of that order mm -hmm. and say these these are not proper subjects of the state of the king of whoever in order to establish the order so there's a simple maybe example of how we can understand that in a colonial context and all of us can understand the trade-off between freedom and security as it was more or less explicitly offered to the American public during the first Bush administration. Yeah, absolutely. Like very, very explicit. Very clearly, that was a lot of what was happening there. And the fact that we still like take off our shoes and shit for the TSA, that's basically yeah. most masking protocols at this point. Yeah. Yeah, there's... There's no question about that. Yeah, and it's. I, I think that's that's one of the most useful things about again Ben's ongoing commentary here is that, like the just through his work, the continuity between the war on terror mm -hmm. and you know what's shaping up to be the long war on COVID. He calls it like a global civil war, you know that in in which an enemy is construed within the society, mm -hmm. you know nominally the virus but it can infect people and so therefore the people have to be dealt with in this way you know this this global civil war that he sees happening you know i i think like we can really i think clearly understand the sense in which that's connected to the war and terror and the, the way that there's been this smooth shift over and like i i think that's not it's not necessarily obvious to people like even even if you are familiar with his work like, it's not clear that, like, okay, well, like, but aren't troops still in, like, Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff like that? Well, mm -hmm. you know, Afghanistan, no, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. really. At yeah. least, you know, they're contractors or whatever. But, you know, more obvious the way in which the functioning of the state has shifted from this external to an internal enemy. And the way in which, like, uh, yeah, like, the state is simply much less concerned about the kinds of things that it was concerned with in the Bush era. Exactly. So... I believe, if I remember rightly, uh, Agamben has another book. It's a short little book, maybe has two or three lectures in it called Stasis or something like that. And he takes a look at the original meaning of Stasis. And I believe it's been a long time since I've read it, but I have more recently read Thucydides this month, in fact. And Stasis comes up in the context of what is happening in Coursera where everyone has turned against each other and stasis or civil strife as it was meant then has become this permanent condition of shifting enemies personal advantage and more or less total pandemonium that is still a deadlock yeah that sounds familiar <laughs> yeah that's what agamben is thinking about when because we're Americans, well, 
Not you, Mike. Sorry. No worries. I'm, I'm American. <laughs> yeah. You're the most American Canadian I know. Um, and, but the American experience of the Civil War means that whenever we see the phrase Civil War, we think of symmetrical armed conflict between the states. What Agamben is talking about is closer to civil strife. And yeah, we yeah. can start to see how this cultic practice of medicine that works by fiat and expands the administrative state's power by invoking an emergency easily creates scapegoats that are then necessary to legitimate this at all. I'm talking about the unvaccinated here. Yeah. To continue to have something to rely on to suspend the constitutional order as such. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think he's, you know, a lot of people have commented in various ways on like wokeness as a religion, on like the COVID stuff as a religion and, you know, greater or lesser degrees of, of detail. I, I think Agamben does a good job of, of, you know, not dwelling for too long on this, but really summarizing it nicely when he says that it's like a Gnostic religion or mm -hmm. a Gnostic faith. So he says like, basically that medicine derives its ideas from biology, but unlike biology, medicine articulates these ideas in a Gnostic or Manichaean sense, that is to say through an exacerbated dualistic opposition. There is a malign God or principle, namely the disease, whose specific agents are say bacteria and viruses and a beneficent God or principle, which is not health, but recovery, whose cultic agents are doctors and therapy. As in every Gnostic faith, these two principles are clearly separated, but can in praxis contaminate one another. The mm -hmm. beneficent principle and the doctor who represents it can err and unknowingly collaborate with their enemy mm -hmm. without thereby invalidating either the reality of the dualism or the cultic necessity through which the beneficent uh, principle fights its battle. It is indeed significant that the theologians who have to entrench this strategy represent a science, virology, that does not possess its own place, but stands at the border between biology and medicine. Like, I, that's, that was a really nice summary, I thought. And it really, like, if, if you're wondering, like, you know, I kind of cycle between these weird states where I'm just, like, sometimes I'm just like, can these people, like, really... Like, are we st seriously still masking with these like surgical masks? Like, I mean, you know, just like they don't do anything. Like, and everyone know everyone acknowledges this on some level or another. Like, if you go to the various authorities about like, you know, what are the particle sizes and what are the required filter sizes? Like, yeah, surgical masks are not doing it. That's not what they're for. If they're for anything, you know. So, but if you if you understand it as a cultic practice, it's like, oh, of course. Like, it's just not. There's nothing to be surprised about. There's nothing to be, you know, even like infuriated about. Like it's serving this function, right? Like it's mm -hmm. a ritual function for a Gnostic faith, which cannot be disproved no matter what. So like, it, you know, for those of you who may be looking at some of the vaccine side effect data or the various kinds of FOIA releases that are coming out of Pfizer, which have some, you know, concerning data in them, I would say is the, the least I would say about mm -hmm. it. If you're looking at those and thinking there's going to be a reckoning and that like people will be like, oh man, like that went really poorly. Like that was actually a, a botched vaccine rollout and like heads need to roll. Like that's not going to happen. Mm -mm. And this is why. And this is the the mechanism by which these these things are going to just be absorbed. And mm -hmm. it'll be phrased as like, oh, well, like the science has changed or whatever it is. But those are the those are kind of like the, the liturgical formulae that go over the, the actual functioning of this, this faith system. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's right. And I, it's interesting because Agamben, I just want to bring this up. Agamben does a good job of telling us that he's mostly talking about Italy here. Yeah. He is writing from his own experience of it. The American experience has been quite different, far more mixed, I would say, than the Italian experience for a lot of reasons. If, you, if you've lived in Florida this whole time, you've had a very different experience of COVID under DeSantis than I have had under Gavin Newsom in Absolutely. California. Absolutely. And, and we can't ignore that. 
I would also say that it varies from country to country, not just state to state. I mean, Mike, you guys have had a hell of a time with it in the Great White North. Yeah, it's been no bueno. Yeah, exactly. Very repressive, like actually shockingly repressive. Yeah, uh, and just kind of what I've seen. backhanded and flailing and like, yeah, it's just been a mess. And what's yeah. your vac- What's your vaccination count? Because it was sh- like dog shit for a while too. Yeah, it's up there now. I'm not even sure what it is for Ontario, but it must be it must be greater than 80. percent I mean, it's it's well higher than like mm-hmm. what they were saying was going to give us herd immunity. Remember that, you know? But it's it's high, and like I don't I don't even know that it makes sense to track anymore because you have people going in for like third and fourth and and yeah. doses at yeah. this point. Some some really crazy people are are out just there. dosing up. Just, yeah, it's just dosing up. And you got to do it. I mean, I think those people are pretty healthy. rare, but the point still stands. <laughs> yeah. So, the question that Agamben thinks is the most important one for us to ask is, where are we now? This is his attempt to do that. To think in the middle of a crisis, to think as history unfolds is very, very hard. It's very, very messy. And I have to commend him for what he gets with great brevity. The other path dependency that we should talk about, because I think this might be something we want to dwell on for longer, because we sort of have done a good job of ironing out what the political parts of this are. There is a Mm. deeper spiritual crisis that's happening here that I think yeah. Agamben touches on. And it's that, and I would describe this as like a like sub-political crisis as well, is that both the idea of the human life and the, and the citizen have been completely atrophied. Yeah. So that human life can be reduced to bare life, that is survival, and that civic duty can be reframed to be non-civic life, i.e. social distancing. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting points in this book is the way that the dissolution of society is framed as, or, you know, again, points this out very nicely that the dissolution of society is is framed as a pro-social act. Yeah. It's like anti-political by its very nature. There was a brief article that came out during the high point of the COVID crisis or right after it's like real crest, I would say midway through 2020, where they were talking about how all of these countercultural bands in the UK were doing live stream shows, encouraging everyone to stay home per government edict. Yeah. And that however you felt about whether they were right or wrong to do that is said something about the nature of the quote unquote counterculture. Yeah. That that's how it sought to employ itself. Yeah. I, I Yeah. It's, it's hard to know what to make of some of that. I mean, I think it's becoming more clear that a lot of what is generally thought of the counterculture is less peripheral than we might think and more tightly controlled than we might mm-hmm. think. You know, at the same time, like there's clearly like a strong class element to all of this. And I think it, that's maybe, maybe one of the weaknesses. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's a weakness or not. I mean, but again, Ben doesn't really address that directly here, but like clearly there are people who can afford to stay home and people who can't. Yes. And you know, the people who can afford to stay home are driving a lot of this and their particular class interests are as well. You know, so maybe-, maybe They really like the plexiglass that, dividers. They're yeah. into that <laughs> as a social experience. Yeah. And I mean, if you're uh, I, like, I, well, I don't know, I'm speaking well outside of my expertise here, but maybe if you're a band online and you have a lot of fans online, like maybe your fans are predominantly able to, to cope with that where other mm-hmm. people are not. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah. that, the reason that I wanted to stay on that is because one of the questions we've been asking, obviously, the whole time is why nothing feels possible. And his point about how an anti-society becomes the civic ideal, more or less. I mean, his stuff on the, the Catholic Church, I thought, was amazing, too. Mm-hmm. Where he was like, this is just walking away from your actual explicit duties and virtues. Yeah, you have to visit the sick. Like, that's just you, you have to. Yeah, like, it's you, you can't stop it because it's scary. Yeah, you, yeah. you have to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Eucharist has to be 
received. That's yeah. to be given and received. You know, these things must happen. That was the eeriest thing to me. It was watching Pope Francis celebrate mass, like social distanced. That is one of yeah. the most iconic images of the pandemic to me. Now, we have spent a lot of time talking about elite interests, who elites are, what they want. I think we should also be honest here, too, and say that this type of decadence in the strict sense, this falling away from the traditions that have held society together, is a part and parcel uh, with what Agamben is noticing about how we could willingly opt out of our own society and think that it is a good thing. And that that isn't just a problem of elite advantage. No, not at all. Yeah. And I I think this is, you know, I really struggled with Gambin's work when I was reading it before. And I think, you know, this this book has made me want to go back and revisit this because it's clear he knows what's going on, right? So, you know, yeah. I, I think if mm-hmm. it's it's definitely worth me paying attention more to his his theoretical work. What I understood of it, particularly, I think it's the the fourth and last book in the Homo Sacer series, which is called I think the Highest Poverty. Hmm. Is I, that about I, like monastic life? Or yeah, something exactly. Like that? So yeah. he's he's interested in monastic rules and the way that kind of communally adopted rules structure life in a way that can, I think, provide, you know, I, I, I don't, I think what he's gesturing to is something along the lines of like the Franciscan sort of way of life providing a model for like a transmodern political future. The Benedictine view the Benedi- that it, Alistair McIntyre has, yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I think he's not too specific about what that looks like. I mean, to the point where, uh, like, I think if you're Muslim reading that, it's like, oh, I already have most of this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, or if you're Catholic praying the hours, you know, like you're, you've you've got some level of like ritual resistance Mm -hmm. yeah if you're orthodox yeah 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 or there you know that's i think that's what he's gesturing to and the the ways in which those the way of life that you have which is structured by rules which you adhere to and are communally adopted and respect can offer a an alternative to like yeah this just utterly barren biopolitics is seems it seems like that's like he's not he doesn't talk about that really in in this uh particular book where are we now very much but Mm -hmm. i i think that that's obviously kind of where he he wants to take this and i think that's worth looking at very carefully and and you know certainly for me to be more patient with the you know billion quotations in medieval italian and Mm -hmm. archaic greek and stuff like that which make it very difficult yeah um yeah. You know, note to translators, please translate all of it. Yeah. Right? If yeah. I could at least read... do at least do footnotes <laughs> or endnotes <laughs> of it if you're not going to translate it in text. Just, yeah, if I if I could read archaic Greek, I would just read, you know. I would just do it. it I just... would I would be reading Attic Greek already. I'd be reading I'd be reading the Bible in coin. Yeah. Motherfucker, yeah, exactly. if I could. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that's that's kind of what it seems like that's where he's he's going is like the way of like rebuilding an authentic way of life is the way to repopulate this completely barren inner space where all we believe in is survival. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that should be really familiar to Lash fans, like particularly like the minimal self is just, is basically about this, like what it means to only be attached to your own survival. Yes, exactly. I also think, I mean, this is really hard too, right? Like I'm, if you have people in your life who are sick, who you care about, who you love, it is terrifying to think that they may catch the thing that tips them over the edge mm-hmm. or permanently damages them in a way that makes their life worse. Like, I don't want to say that everybody is walking around being like cowards and they're not doing their goddamn liberty because I think that's a really facile response to the power of the bare life 
paradigm. That is what I have not enjoyed about guys who are in the Claremont Institute or whatever. They're just like, well, you just shouldn't do that. And it's like, yeah, but like, it's not like you guys are coming out here with this other thing we should be doing. Yeah, like just just get certainty in your heart in the next life and you'll be fine. Like just get the certainty. Like that's an extremely high state. Like to be able to confront your own death and just be like, yeah, I'm okay with this. This mm -hmm. like my principles are beyond this. There are very few people who occupy that state. I would certainly never claim it for myself. Nor would I. Um, you know, so it's yeah, <laughs> yes, you know, like not a we're talking um, about a difficult thing here that is made more difficult by the fact that we have evacuated all of the principles that could have been held in common mm -hmm. to allow more of us to try to onboard into something that approaches that state of being. Yeah. Who wants to die for an economic zone? Yeah. Yeah, for real. Like, wh yeah. Who, who, this, who, is, who? this is why I kept thinking about Web3 shit when I was reading Agamben. Hmm. Because there's this idea, this is why I'm skeptical of it. There's this idea that it is going to give you the off-ramp to everything that's bad about Web 2. What I actually see is deeper interpenetration of the human subject with all of the things that Web 2 already freaks me out with. It's like, oh, I could turn smiling into a Bitcoin exchange on the fucking blockchain. Or you know what I mean? I am even yeah. more atomized, even more separate, even more solid that my atomized self now has a carapace of code rather than being ghouly enmeshed in some sort of black box algorithm. I don't know if that's a way out because as the things that McIntyre and Agamben are looking at are the death of the common. I don't think that off-ramp is the right one, or it's not the one that you think it is. Because to me, it still speaks to the survivalist instinct to get to extricate yourself from the difficult things around you. It's still survivalist, yeah. which means that no matter how much people talk about their liberties when they're talking about that thing, where it will end up is a back in the biopolitical security domain because bare life will be the only thing that it can argue for at a certain point. But it won't just be the bare life of your body. It will be the expression of your body on the chain or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to make of any of that. I mean, I like, you know, half my friends are just like, you know, they spend more time doing technical analysis of crypto than like yeah, anything yeah. else anymore. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that looks like another kind of slavery to me, but, you know, that's just the, maybe the behavior of my, uh, your cohort friends or whatever I, this, but, yeah. like this is i'm not trying to say that like nothing good can come out of anything anybody's doing right now what i'm trying to say is if you're looking for off ramps rather than solutions it's not on your phone <laughs> it's not it's not on your phone man like yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not on your computer most likely you know like yeah. it's not there it's that's not going to be where it is i look i wish it was that would be ill that would be awesome for us if we could just log on and solve it. But I've been seeing log on as the solution to so many intractable pro problems that are new or inherited for millennia to the point where I'm like, I can't believe this anymore. It's just like I can't, like it's the who's, I, I won't get fooled again mm -hmm. with a lot of being like terrified into like total subservience or like absolute acceptance of elite opinion ever again yeah i i mean i think i think probably a lot of people feel that way and that's why the agamben stuff doesn't have me totally bummed out even though it does sketch out the sense in which this is likely to be kind of like a cyclical recurrence and he's mm -hmm. he's very clear that this is not about this particular coronavirus per se right like things have been trending in this direction for a long mm -hmm. time there's a need to resolve certain 
tensions within the system by internalizing the enemy. And that's what's going to happen. So going forward, we're going to have more viruses or whatever, like things will happen that will enable them to intensify these things. And they'll hold on to whatever they can from each one of these intensifications. Mm -hmm. But like, I think there are going to be periods where this wanes and, you know, part of that will be people resisting in various kinds of ways, you know, and I, I think definitely like, like, I love that Mary Harrington interview. She was, she was fantastic. Day. Yeah. And fantastic. She, and she said a lot of, I think really nice and important things. And mm -hmm. a, a couple of them were like, you know, have physical practices that are not stuff you post like don't don't post or like lift Dude, but don't post totally. physique. i love that yeah. i love that saying i keep thinking about it like yeah like you, your computers are for doing work they should be managing physical things that are real in the world and if they're not then yeah like let them rest mm -hmm. those are those are gin slaves let them rest don't, don't mm -hmm. have them on all the time for delivering you nonsense like take it seriously have physical practices connect things to what's actually happening around you uh in your life you know and i i think that it's just like the reality is it's like probably a lot of people listen to that and they're just like well i just i just can't like i just don't have those circumstances like you know, I'm too atomized. I like don't know anyone in this town that I moved to for work, you know, and I, I think it's it's going to be really difficult. But like, I think this is part of why, again, Ben is pointing to a way of life. Like it has to be in some way totalizing. Mm -hmm. Like you can't get the protection that you need in order to like, you know, do things that are going to benefit you materially, spiritually, whatever, and free yourself from like phone slavery. If it's not at least something that you feel should be your state all the time. I think it requires like at least a commitment to some kind of like totalizing reality or frame to get out of this. Cause otherwise you're just going to get corroded by these like willpower sapping, you know, psychological operations, Skinner boxes that we're all <laughs> carrying around. Right? Yeah. So, so let me say this, we're talking here about change, changing yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's be honest about that. The, the common critique is that this is just lifestyleism. I think that there is something to that critique in that that can easily just become a way where you create a brand identity for yourself or whatever. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Let's take that point. However, we also have to live our lives and we should think about how we're going to live them. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's important. So let's talk about change for a second. One of the things that was really hard for me to learn and not that I'm some guru and I've perfected this. I remember talking to a sponsor. And I was basically saying, like, I'm not ready to let X painful thing go. And he said, look, when you made a decision to turn your will and your life over the care of God, as you understand him, you were basically saying that you don't get to be in charge of what you do and don't get to hold on to anymore. To accept that circumstance requires you not getting to pick and choose. You do these steps, you experience a psychic change. You are willing to undergo that psychic change. But here's the thing. You don't get to pick who you are after that change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is at the core, at the core of what we're talking about when we're talking about way of life stuff here, Mike and I. Yeah. The, this is, I, I mean, you know, listeners know Mike's Muslim. I believe in God. I've talked with Joey Keegan on that, about that on here. I believe in Christ. <laughs> I'm in this, you know, okay. So what are we really talking about? We're talking about saying that you are willing to subordinate your preferences, which goes deeper than what you want for dinner tonight, to something beyond yourself. And only in that way can you experience a totalizing restructuring of your way 
of life. And importantly, that cannot happen while you are alone. You need other people around you. You need guidance from elders to help you achieve that. That's just the way it is. There's not some other way. Maybe you're the unique monastic guru that can go out to a small Greek island and contemplate the image of Christ for the rest of your life, dive into the ocean for fish, climb back up on the rocks, et cetera, et cetera, and that's your life. Very few people can do that. Yeah, you're not. You're and you're not, not. If you're listening to this show, that's not <laughs> you. Not. I'm it's sorry. Not us, it's not you. <laughs> it's not us. It's not you. <laughs> you need to get married and you need a sheikh or a teacher or someone or to look after your spiritual interests. That's what you need to do. That's Don't what go, you need to do. You need somebody you can go to. You need people you can go to. You need peers. You need physical practices. You need practices practices that you can you can do with others. You know, those are important too. And those are things that feel, depending on where you live, very impossible right now, or perhaps curtailed. This is what I think Agamben feels is at stake here. What we're talking about is a very old structure of life. That, like the university system, which he also talks about, has been around for a really long time. And now suddenly, some of the fundamental assumptions about how that works, seminars, meeting in person, things that have been happening in one way or another since at least Socrates, are now atomized, split, divided from in-person phenomenological experience. Yeah, Very strange. Those were the only components of a university education where you might actually receive something like a moral. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. From a mentor, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you're not you're not getting it on Zoom. Yeah, I I think like speaking of way of life, if you're an academic, still, <laughs> then uh, you should read chapter fifteen, Requiem mm-hmm. for the Students, and I think you should take it very seriously. If I can just read the, the yeah, most please. inflammatory part for my <laughs> right. Yeah, this is also the most demanding part that I don't know yeah. if even I could live up to. To be completely yeah, yeah. honest. So he's talking about this, the, the death of the university, right? And he says, of every social phenomenon that dies, it can be said that it somehow deserved its end. It is certain that our universities had reached such a level of corruption and specialistic cluelessness that it is almost impossible to mourn their loss. The student's quality of life was correspondingly impoverished. But there are two points that remain central. One. The instructors who agree, as they have done en masse, to subject themselves to the new online dictatorship and to hold all their classes remotely are the exact equivalent of those university professors who in 1931 pledged allegiance to the fascist regime. As in that case, probably only 15 out of a thousand will refuse to submit. Their names, however, will certainly be remembered alongside the names of those who did not swear allegiance to fascism. Point two, students who really love studying will have to refuse to enroll in these transformed universities and, as their counterparts did centuries ago, establish themselves in new universitates. Only there, against this technological barbarity, can the word of the past be kept alive and something like a new culture be born, if it ever is born. So, I mean, think about it. Yeah, it's a tall order. I want to say here, too, that as I was reading... Agamben's book, I realized that I had not been brave enough within myself while this was all unfolding, if I'm going to be completely honest. I was at times where I had questions or doubts, I did not honor them. I was scared to entertain them. This isn't this moment where I beg for clemency. Rather, it is a moment where I think in this aftermath, Honest reckonings are very, very important to clarify thinking about what is indeed valuable, what is worth having in life, what is worth aspiring towards, what is the good, what is the relationship between yourself and others, between yourself and God, so on and so forth. Fear is an exceptionally powerful emotion because it creates psychologically a state of exception. Yeah. 
where what would be the things you normally do become weird. They no longer function, it seems, as they normally would. This is why principles are so important. They are things you hold on to, even in exceptional moments. But getting yourself into the type of inner discipline where you can live that life is very, very hard. Yeah, and indeed to extricate yourself from the provision provided by the the system that's doing this thing, right? If you're, you Mm -hmm. know, like me and you have a biology background, it may well be that like me, how much food is on your table depends on what some of these very people are up to Mm -hmm. and doing. And, you know, I, I mean, at least in, in my family's case, I mean, our, our response to the last couple of years has been to say like, this is too much for us. We're done. Yeah. And it's time to go do something else that is not, not related to this. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people are making those decisions. You know, it's good to see. I think we do have to abandon the institutions which have betrayed us and the careerists who, you know, despite their unease are unwilling even to concede that like, you know, principles, ordinary principles that seem to be adhered to, you know, mm-hmm. in uh, scientific discourse, for instance, a few years ago have just simply been abandoned. Like if you're not even willing to say yeah. like, okay, something has changed and yeah, it's making me uneasy. Oh, and that's what's so crazy about the thing where it's just like, uh, should we give, should we prefer it when, on entry into the emergency room preference for the vaccinated? Right. It is right. such a grotesque suspension of the principles of providing care for people that I can scarcely believe that people are writing about it. And they are. And it's not just the media class. Apparently, and I've tracked this with a friend of the show, Josh Bregman, frequent guest, about, we think, nurse practitioners, nurses, who log on to talk about how much they hate and wish they didn't have to treat the unvaccinated. Yeah. How it's in a personal affront that they should ever have to. Yeah. If you can't admit at some point in this chain of medical occultic command that something's deeply broken, you're in more serious trouble than anybody who has misgivings uh, about their own ability to be brave. Yeah. And I, I mean, just like, honestly, you don't even have to go that far afield, like read the Lancet, read the British Medical Journal. There's all kinds of like extremely serious reservations that people have about the way that the unvaccinated are being treated, the way that the vaccine rollout has gone, you know, by well-informed people. Like, you you know, you don't have to listen to me. You don't have you just put like, yeah, like go, go look at this stuff. And I, I think like, you know, probably we're, we're talking to people who are, are all on sort of the same page here in the sense that they're uneasy about what's going on at least. And I, you know, I mean, I think now's, now's the time to, to, you know, bunker down, have a look at your life, see what your dependencies are and ask yourself if you're comfortable with the way things are going. Cause you know, from my perspective, it looks like class war that is ramping up is going to be very vicious and you're either going to be, you know, competing for scraps from from the table as a some type of professional, or you're going to be outside of that. You know, trying to make it as like a working class person or a kulak. Like I, I, that's that's what it looks like is shaping up to me. And you know, like that's a weird position to be in. I didn't expect to to have to say that about a place like Canada, the country that is the end of history. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think it's, it's, things are going to get ugly, you know, and I just, Mm -hmm. for for myself and my family, it's like, yeah, I want as much distance from these systems and the frankly, mostly professionals who staff them as I can possibly get right now. And I'm willing to make sacrifices to do that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I hope at least, at least some of our listeners can, you know, make some of those choices themselves that are available to them. They have the resources to do they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think people should read this book. (laughs) Yeah. 
I, I really do. It's brief. It didn't take me that long at all. I'm sure you can, frankly, pirate it from somewhere. But yeah. it has been, you know, this podcast came out. John and I started recording the first episodes in August of 2020. Yeah. We're recording this on December 14th. If you're listening to this now, it's probably right near Christmas. I will be on vacation, not doing podcast stuff for the first time since then. Mm -hmm. And what I can say, surveying all that we've done and all that we've looked at, is that there is a staggering spiritual poverty at the heart of all of this. Yeah. I think that has been my major takeaway from the project of asking why nothing feels possible. There are other things going on there too. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know if that's like the prime mover. I don't know. I don't know. But Agamben's book made that feel palpable in a way that I hadn't fully appreciated. It made yeah. me take a step back and actually retrace my steps all through last year. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was certainly impressed. I mean, just looking at the dates is wild, right? Like I mean, I certainly, I feel the way he does now, but I think if I had read him contemporaneously, I would have been kind of like, maybe you're overstepping a bit. Like you, I, I don't know. I read some of it of, while it was coming yeah. out. I read a few things. I read the one that you read from on students and teachers. And I yeah, remember, right. I remember being like, he's not wrong, but I'm deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it sums it up, I think. <laughs> you know, and I read a couple other things, and then Christopher Caldwell, who has blurbed this, I really enjoy him. I really liked his book, the, the 60s, and their impact, wrote a piece on Agamben called The Philosopher of the Pandemic. I think it came out in The New Yorker or something like that. Actually, I'd be mm -hmm. amazed if it was The New Yorker, but it came out in a mainstream publication, and... He talked about how important this was to thinking what was going on with COVID. I don't remember that piece making a whole lot of waves. Yeah, un unsurprisingly. 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 <laughs> no, nobody really wants to pay attention to this. I, I, I think from the impression that I got was that like, as soon as he started writing about this, he was canceled. Like the very first thing, it was just oh, like, him nope, writing about this was like Zizek writing about the migrant crisis in Europe, right? Yeah, but but Zizek's back now because he's saying the right things about the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah, that's stuff. right. Yeah, that's so <laughs> sad to see. Honestly, yeah, so oh, sad man, to see. Got to hustle, you know. You I know, I know. Can't break but his he, rice bowl. But when you watch, when you watch old Zizek stand on the border between middle Europe and the Balkans and say, you know, these, the side, either side of this river might look identical to you, but on this side is middle Europe, which is respect for human rights, democracy, women get raped and don't like it. And then on the other side is the Balkans, despotism, oriental darkness right. you know <laughs> women get raped and like it <laughs> like that's you know like that is him <laughs> sticking his slovenian thumb in the eye to all those nato assholes yeah in the 90s is is the zizek i fell in love with and deeply admired as a thinker yeah, yeah I, re I remember seeing a, a video of him that was like an interview and it was being shot in like a, a you know, four-star hotel in Thailand where he had flown with his son to play mm -hmm. video games in the hotel. And they're like, yeah, I'm not going outside. Like we don't go outside. We just stay in the hotel room and play PlayStation. And I was like, man, look, it's over for this guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> they got him. Something happened. I don't know. Yeah, what. Something happened. But yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I, I think that it's, yeah. Agamemnon knows what's going on, and I think he's he's definitely the guy to watch. I mean, like this is way ahead mm -hmm. of right. Um, Even Phil Cunliffe admitted that when I was talking to him about yeah. this. 
He said, God, God, what's the guy to deal with? And of course, there are elements which many people, Phil included, would find deeply reactionary about some of what Agamben has to say. That's fine. What matters is that he called a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, even even if it is reactionary, I mean, I, I think you kind of, like, if you're doing a genealogical project where you make a deep study of, you know, Christianity's influences on modernity, you're going to get a little reactionary. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> totally. It's, 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 it's just, hard to avoid it. Yeah, It's hard, hard to avoid it entirely. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think, I think Agamben's, politically like entirely marginalized at this point so like no need to to fear whatever his particular political program is but like yeah. i i think the the genealogical approach is indispensable at this point is indispensable and if you like if you're still one of those people who think that like the renaissance happened and there was some like cognitive disjuncture and like europeans became secular modern rationalist humanists who just like are really good at yeah you're also like missing the, the amount of stuff that these people were obsessed with astrology fortune telling alchemy yeah. all sorts of weird occult shit was happening with the very same people who were at the cutting edge of the new rationality and none of that's gone. Like Silicon Valley is obsessed with occultism. Yeah, like, same shit. You know, it's, yeah, uh, it's same shit. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think like Agamben is a very good way of maybe disabusing yourself of of that kind of stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. a tough tough slog. But like when you when you see the progression from Greek sources through to Christian sources and commentaries, and then the way that those ideas are carried forward by you know these supposed secular modern revolutionaries. I, I think things make a lot more sense. And the like the irrationality of it all like is just not stupefying anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, like that's that's yeah of course it was that's that way. It works. Yeah. Of course it was that way. And then you end up coming with all sorts of troubling questions for yourself. Such as there there are people that want to tell you that the world has been disenchanted. I don't think that's true, to be honest. Yeah. It's been, you know, re-enchanted in a different way different expectations different ideas of what that is going to be some of them would argue manifestly worse yeah it means you have to let go of a lot of pat narratives about the enlightenment even common critiques of the enlightenment you would have to let go of yeah and that's what that's what he offers here. It was very interesting to see Illich come up so frequently. He is yeah. definitely experiencing a renaissance mm -hmm. after the pandemic, in part probably because of Agamben and because of other, you know, what's his name? John Michael Greer. We did his stuff. We did mm -hmm. one of his things here. I'm sure he's an Illich guy. I'd uh, be surprised. He might be. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure he's referenced Illich a few times. Mm -hmm. um, Illich is particularly notable from the point of view of the educational component here, because Illich mm -hmm. in his Deschooling Society book, like towards the back end, provides a model, a specific model for how you would have decentralized teaching using basically like a bulletin board on the internet or something like that. And like the, he's writing before the internet, but what he's describing is clearly, you know, like an internet type communication system. And, you know, like the challenge, I guess, would be for that to not immediately get co-opted by venture capital or something like or Google or whatever. But certainly I think like Illich is definitely worth revisiting right now. Definitely you want to read Medical Nemesis and de-schooling de society if you haven't mm -hmm. because those those will give you a lot of resources to understand what's happening the apparently irrational nature of what's happening yeah absolutely absolutely so that being said i think we're good to go here yeah i'm glad we did this yeah it, it, it felt like a real throat clearing after launching this podcast honestly and you know now we're about to be we're only a few months away from being two years out from the pandemic shockingly yeah so whole new world whole new world everybody stay safe out there mike thanks for joining me yeah thanks for having me and we'll see you guys later salam salam